0: This teaching is from City Church Coventry. You can find us online at www.citychurchcoventry.org We've been talking about building and building the house. And I'm going to continue that. But I, I, I really feel that God wants me to give you a challenge for this year. And that is that I want each one of us To build something eternal this year. I want each one of us to build something eternal this year. Because that's who we are. We are those who are called to build for eternity. I believe the baptism in the spirit means. That one of the consequences of the baptism in the spirit. Is that every day. We can do something that impacts eternity. Yeah. Every day. Because the Holy Spirit is in us and with us, we can do something that impacts eternity. That's a great prayer to pray every morning when you wake up. Holy Spirit, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do today together that is going to impact eternity? It could be one conversation where you bring some revelation of Jesus. It could be praying with someone. It could be performing a miracle. It could be all kinds of things. But I believe that the baptism of the Spirit ought to mean that every day our lives make an impact on eternity. But those are the things that are often momentary and in the moment. And it might build something more in someone else's life. But we're also called to be those that build for eternity. Don't build with wood, hay and stubble. But with gold, silver and precious stones. The things that can pass through the fire that separates this age from the age to come. And last forever. And so that's why I want to turn you to uh, Revelation 21. And when you're building things like that, it takes some time. It isn't just in a moment. It's actually a a committed and focused decision. We've been talking a lot about building the house. And that's a picture of the temple. It's one of the main images that the Bible gives of the church in the New Testament, the house of God. And we're all living stones being built together to form a place where God lives by his spirit. Revelation 21, this is John seeing in, into the age to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Let's just stop there a minute. He saw the city, but then he describes it another way. What's the other way he describes it? The bride. Who is the bride? The church. It's us. So who, is, so, what is, so who is the city? The church. And then he said, I saw the new heavens and the new earth. And if you read the whole of this chapter, he only describes a city. So also, the city is the new heavens and the new earth. Now, that's not to say that in the age to come... God, you know, the whole of creation is going to be this kind of just this little city. That would be quite disappointing given what the present creation is like, isn't it? But what it's saying is that the whole of the age to come, the whole of the new heavens and the new earth has the characteristics of this city. Where God's people live and where God dwells with his people. And when you read the scripture, and particularly when you read the book of Revelation, but when you read any of the kind of uh, the the Bible that uses imagery, lots of imagery, you're always looking for these images to harmonize together. You're not looking for them to get more and more disparate and, and, you know, that that every detail means some completely new thing. No, every detail is just showing you another facet of the central truth of the central image. And we're, we're comfortable with that with the imagery of the church. The city is the bride, is the temple. Is the body. Yeah. And we understand that it just is helping us understand different aspects of who God has called us to be. And so it shouldn't surprise us that that John says it's the city, which is the bride. And um, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. Okay, if you want a one liner of what's God's eternal purpose, what's the goal of what God is doing? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will um, be with them and they will be his people. That's one of the ways we, we talk about things like Habakkuk 2:14, 14, that we all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're not talking about two different things. We're talking different aspects of the same thing. The New Testament writers often use the word full and fullness and the God who fills all things in every way. And it's like they're trying to find this language that draws together all this imagery, but it's all going after the same thing. We are going to be with him forever. That is the overriding characteristic of the age to come, that that there is no separation at any point in time and any way between us and God. His place is our place. Our place is his place. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, we've been talking, haven't we, about building the house and the temple. But when you get down to verse uh, 22 here, it says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God almighty and the lamb. And that's not. It's not saying that what we're doing now has no impact on eternity. In fact, almost the opposite. It's saying that when we finish this work of building the house and Christ returns, the house becomes the city, becomes the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. That what we're part of right now in the church of Jesus Christ carries in it the essence of the new creation. Isn't that an amazing thing? 2 Corinthians 5.17, which traditionally says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, is a little bit of a a simplification or actually almost an over-elaboration of of what the translation should be. If you have the NIV, it says it well. It says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The Greek says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation. That's all it says. You've got to kind of, it's almost like, if anyone is in Christ bang, the new creation. That's what happens when we are in Christ. It's not that I just come into the new creation in Christ, I do, but the new creation comes into the world in me because Christ is in me, the hope of glory. And this gathering of God's people is a foretaste but is also in some senses already the breaking in of the new creation into the present age because you have something within you that is incorruptible Your eternal life that you've inherited for Christ is incorruptible. Incorruptible means it can never be destroyed. It will last forever and ever and ever. There are eternal things that we already enjoy. We're partakers of the eternal covenant. We have eternal life. It's already, already eternity is here, has arrived. The new creation has come. But what is this city then? It's coming down out of heaven to earth. And we know that the temple is being built up from the ground towards heaven. And the two come together in the new age. And what it's telling us is this that what we do now builds for eternity. Builds for eternity. What you are doing now builds for eternity. And my challenge to you for this year is to say, I'm going to build something. Eternal. I'm going to build something eternal. The Old Testament has a lot to say about the city and building the city. And often the context of that, particularly if you read Isaiah, the context is a city that's been destroyed and the city that needs to be rebuilt. And of course, he's, he's talking naturally about Jerusalem because not long after Isaiah's time, at least not long in kind of biblical time scales, Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were taken into captivity. And then a time comes over various phases where the people return from captivity and first of all rebuild the temple. Um, We touched on that a little bit in the stories from um, Haggai and Ezra. And then a generation later, actually Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the walls of the city. And this is how biblical prophecy usually works. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about our present life and the life that we'll have in the age to come. And he talks about first the natural, then the spiritual. Yeah, first the natural, then the spiritual. And it works like that with Bible prophecy as well. That generally when a prophetic word comes, there there is going to be a historic fulfillment. That is, something will happen in history that fulfills that prophecy. So when Isaiah Isaiah talks about rebuilding the city and repairing the breach of the walls, there is a natural fulfillment when a man called Nehemiah comes along a couple of hundred years later and leads the people to rebuild the walls. Okay, So that that prophecy has been fulfilled. Kind of. (laughs) Because first the natural and then the spiritual. Well, what's the spiritual? We just read about the spiritual city. It's this new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the one that is heavenly in its origin, just like you are. And there's now a city that God is building that is actually comprised of the people in this room. And so when we read the history, we're reading the natural, but from the natural, we can learn lessons for the spiritual. We can call it natural and spiritual. We can call it historical and eschatological an eschatological just means to do with the end, what's happening. And by the way, the end times began on the day of Pentecost or thereabouts. You know, the New Testament writers refer to different things, but definitely at the outpouring of the spirit. That was the beginning of the end times, the end of the end times is when Jesus comes back. So we've, we live in the end times. John says, dear children, this is the final hour. And you've probably heard me say this before, but I remember years ago going to see Reinhard Bonquet preach in, uh, in Birmingham. He's gone to be with the Lord recently as a man that led probably millions of people to Christ across the world. Amazing evangelist. And his sermon was, if John said 1900 years ago or nearly 2000 years ago, that it's the final hour. Now it must be the final minute." And being an evangelist is, you know, the response that was everyone get up and go and tell as many people about Jesus as you can. And of course he was right. (laughs) I'm not sure he was right about it being the final minute, but it gives it's that sense of this is how this is how we should live. The end is upon us. And whether that literally means that in your lifetime Jesus returns or not doesn't actually make any differences to the attitude we should have about how we live. We always live in the hope of, of his day as we see the day approaching. Yeah. And one day a generation will be alive that does see him return. And I can find no theological reason to say it can't be this generation. It's going to be those that take on um, the call of God and respond in faith. That's, it seems to me that everything. if there's anything that you can measure how close we are to the return of Jesus, it's the activity of the saints, not what's going on in the world not here to talk about that today particularly but but when i come to the scripture the only things and i'm not even sure we can take those but if we but if there's anything we can take that measures the return of christ it's to do with the preaching of the gospel in all the earth and the bride making herself ready it's the things that actually we're called to do through the empowering of the holy spirit how do we respond to those how do we respond in faith And my question is, what are you going to build for eternity this year? What are you going to build for eternity? And because the natural foreshadows the spiritual, and the historical speaks of the eschatological, we can read all of this history, and we can draw lessons that we can apply that will help us lay hold of what God has got for us. Amen? So we're going to read the story at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to we're going to draw some conclusions from that. I am really encouraged. I've got two pages of notes today. I've been speaking for 10 minutes, and I'm already through the first page. Glory to God. Hallelujah. But now I'm going to read you nearly two chapters of Scripture. But there we go. That's, this is the good stuff. Nehemiah 1. We're going to do the first four verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it, but neither do you. So which is fine until we come to the Greek. And then I remember that Sula's in the room. So I'm going to go real confident on these uh, Hebrew words. Um, <laughs> now it happened in the months of Chislev in the 20th year that I was in Susa, the citadel and Han and I, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. So Nehemiah is in exile. Okay. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So the people he's talking about are the people that we read about in the story of Ezra and from the book of Haggai that had rebuilt the temple. So these are the people. They've survived the exile. They've returned from the exile. And it's now a generation or so later. And those people, you know, this guy says that it's shameful. Because they live in a city where the walls are broken down and the gates have been burnt with fire. And as soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Okay, I'm going to skip his specific prayer. And we're going to come back in at verse 11. And this is the end of his prayer. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of man, of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer probably meant something almost like he literally did give the king his wine, but he would have been almost something like a prime minister. Or at least some a very, it wasn't just, he wasn't just kind of like a waiter. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now i had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me with the queen sitting next to him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that the that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose at night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, just got Adam's attention there with dragons, dragon spring and to the dung gate. I don't know whose attention I got with dung gate, but there we go. And I expect, inspected the walls of Jerusalem and were, um, that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. Basically, he's saying there's so much rubble that you couldn't ride through sitting on top of a horse or a donkey or whatever he's riding. Then I went up to the night by, uh, in the night to the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate, and so I returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of them the work we were to do. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision." And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But then Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. And they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right of claim in Jerusalem. Okay, so we're going to draw a few lessons from Nehemiah here. And uh, no donkey riding required. And uh, no need to kind of name the, the different doors of your house by different gates. Dragon gate, dung gate, dung gate. You probably don't want one of those in your house, do you? But... Um, Back in the days of outhouses. I'm sorry, I'm digressing in, in meaninglessly. So I, I want to I show, show you five things that he did that each of us can do to build something for eternity this year. The first one is this, prayer. Prayer. Do you know how long you prayed for? Probably you don't unless you know how the Hebrew months work. And so I can tell you because I you know, read it from someone that does know how they work. From when he heard his report until he went to the king and he said, I continued in prayer and fasting was four months. I don't believe it was a full fast for four months. It's a season of prayer and fasting. But I love the way it puts this. It says, I, verse four, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Not to the God of heaven, before the God of heaven. And And I think what he's getting at here is that It's not about how many things we can ask God for. Prayer and fasting is not about how many things we can. We don't fast to make our, you know, our petitions to God. It's kind of like, you know, here's my normal request, but I'm going to add in, I'm going to play by the fasting card, which means that God has, you know, he's got to either give me more or do it quicker. Um, That's not how prayer and fasting works. But he's saying, I prayed and fasted before the Lord, because prayer and fasting and a season of prayer and fasting is a way of opening our lives and saying, God, we want you to pour into us what's in your heart. We want you to ca- we want to catch your heart. And if you want to build something, if you want to do something that's going to be worthwhile, if you want to do something that's going to last into eternity, it's not enough just to get your interest peaked. It's not enough just to hear the story. Oh, the the walls are broken down and and the gates are are, are burnt. And and in the moment, Nehemiah was like, that's terrible. I want to do something about it. But he didn't do anything about it for four months. Why not? Because it wasn't just enough to know what the problem was. He needed to catch God's heart. He needed to catch what God wanted to do. He needed to know that this wasn't just his natural response. One of the things that fasting does is it it takes away, it denies your own desires. It denies your own priorities. And we do that in order that other priorities can come and take priority. (laughs) So that actually God's thoughts and God's intentions. I don't know about you, but I find when I fast, I find it really difficult to pray coherently. I find it really difficult. I just can't concentrate. What I tend to find is, after I've been fasting, in the few days afterwards, I'm suddenly, I'm really sharp in my prayer. I feel like I can hear God sometimes. if If I can be perfectly honest, sometimes when I fast, the only thing that I actually achieve is to not eat. It doesn't really feel like, in that period of time, I've achieved anything else. It doesn't feel like it. But what it produces afterwards, I know that what I've done is I've made, I've put myself in a place where God can pour in him, his priorities, his thoughts, his ideas. Nehemiah does it for four months. That's some preparation, but it's a big task that he's coming to. If you want to do something great for God, make sure that you put yourself before him. You don't just pray to him, but you open your life to him and say, Lord, I want you to pour your heart, your mind, your thoughts into, into my life. The next thing is this, is that Nehemiah had both fear and favor. One uh, Chapter 111, and he says this, give success to your... Um, Sorry. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of his, this man. Fear of God and favor of man go together. Yeah. And he's saying that there are people, Lord, who pray delighting to fear you. <laughs> now. I don't know about you, but fear is not something I often associate with delight. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of you are adrenaline junkies and like roller coasters and stuff. And um, That's not really fear, though, is it? That's just, a bit of a, that's just a bit of a fright. And it tells us something about the nature of fearing God. Fearing God doesn't come out of being scared of what he's going to do to you. It comes from a greater and greater appreciation of his awe and his power. And he he, he said this morning, "I, I I want you to come, I want to draw you into my glory. I want to draw you into my presence. To be able to see what an awesome God he is, what a powerful God he is, but to not shrink back. But to know that because of what Christ has done, we can stand in his presence. He says... Those who delight to fear your name, he then says, let those be the ones who know the favor of the king. And in uh, 2.5, let's look at at this here, it says. um, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah. Have I found favor in your sight? God had positioned Nehemiah for the task that he had for him. If Nehemiah had been a farmer or a bricky or which would actually have been helpful for building the walls, but if he'd have been doing if he'd have been in any other position, he would not have had access to the person that was going to have the human authority to see the purposes of God fulfilled. Where has God positioned you? I don't believe that any of us occupy any position in life that is random. (laughs) That just so happened. I believe that God positions each of us. And many of you will have testimonies that testify to that, that say, you know, God, God clearly made a way, put me in this place where it's the house you live or the job that you have or the course that you're studying on or whatever it might be. God has positioned you there with a purpose. What is, where has God positioned you? What's the purpose he has got for you? And the fear of God leads to the favor of men because the king here says, and, um, you know, what can I do for you? And in verse eight it says, The king granted me what I'd asked what I'd asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God is upon me. Where has God positioned you? And what has he put his good hand on you for? What has he put his good hand on you for? Paula read from Psalm sixteen today. I set the Lord before me. And the Lord is always at my right hand. You know, if, if, if his hand is, if your right hand is in his hand, uh, one, one, of the, one of the things that you're doing is you are letting him lead you. What is, what is his hand in my hand to do? What is heaven and earth partnered together to do in me? The next thing we can learn from Nehemiah is this is to know the times and the seasons. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, it's the first month, the beginning of the year. It's time for a new season. New seasons don't come overnight. And I'm not particularly sure that there's great significance in natural seasons. It's January. Well... I'm not sure in the purposes of God that's that significant. In our own natural rhythms and the way we live our life, it perhaps is. So it's a good time to think about new things. But just because it's January doesn't mean that you're ready to do something new. It wasn't because it was Nisan that, that Nehemiah was ready. It was because he'd spent four months in prayer and fasting. Yeah, That was what prepared him for the new season. So seasons are spiritual, not natural. It's like Jesus cursing the fig tree. Have you ever thought how unfair it was to that fig tree? The scripture tells us it was not the season for fruit. And when Jesus saw the fig tree had no fruit, he cursed it. And then when they came back a few days later, it shriveled up and died. I don't know. But I mean, I mean, there's not a lot of people that are into kind of like vegetable rights. But but if, if you were, you would feel there was some great injustice there. But seasons with God are not to do with natural things. The fig tree speaks of Israel. And what Jesus was saying is, I ought to be finding fruit. I've been out here ministering now. I don't know where it was in His time, time of ministry, but either for months or years, I've been ministering, and I'm not seeing the fruit that I should see. I'm giving you the good stuff here. I'm speaking you words of eternal life. I should be seeing more fruit, and I'm not seeing it. Spiritually, this is not. This is a spiritually. This is a time for fruit, and it's not there. And because he's gracious and compassionate, he didn't curse the people and they all shriveled up and died. He cursed a tree as a sign. But it helps us understand that the natural seasons may be helpful, but they are not determinative. God determines his seasons. And to some extent, we determine our engagement with the new seasons of God. In how we prepare for it. So you may be right now in January at different stages. You could be just beginning to sense something from God. Maybe something has just begun to grip you. Maybe you're even just kind of like asking the question, Lord, what what have you got for me in this time? Maybe something's already been birthed in here and you've been watering it and laying it before God in, in prayer and fasting. Maybe God is already doing a work. Maybe the preparation's always begun. Maybe it is now time to begin something. Maybe you're ready for the next step. God always works at the fullness of time. At just the right time. I want to remind you that patience is a virtue. And a fruit of the spirit. <laughs> know the times and the seasons. Assess where you're at. What have I caught from God? Have I caught anything from God? I need to go to God and catch something. Have I caught something but I've not really cultivated it? I've not brought it back before God. Have I been doing, have I been doing that? Is it, time for, is it time for the next step? Is it time for fruition? Then the next thing that Nehemiah does is this: he goes and he sizes up the job. He goes secretly, just takes a few guys with him, doesn't tell anyone else what he's doing, and he goes and surveys the job. What are we going to do? What is there to do? Jesus says this in Luke 14:28. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, I don't know how many of you would like to build a tower. I don't. Know. Is, if it was a, I'm not surprised, Jeff. You know, I don't know whether it was a popular hobby in Jesus's time, tower building. But he says, which one of you, if you want to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Yeah. Size up the job. See what's required and don't go public too soon. Yeah. Be like Mary. She treasured these things in her heart. She treasured these things in her heart. She knew more than most people what was going on. I'm reminded of that every year in December when a random Christmas playlist comes on and you find some bloke singing, Mary, did you know? Go, yes, she did. (laughs) And she knew a lot more than you would have done if you were around me. So, you know, I do believe someone wrote a response song at some point from Mary's perspective, but treasure the things in your heart. God will give you insight. Doesn't don't immediately go and share it. Mary treasure them in her heart. Let's let's think of someone that didn't do that. There's a guy called Joseph. God gives him a dream and he goes, hey, hey, brothers. You're all going to bow down to me. Really? Okay. Let's see if we can do that while you're down in a pit. Yeah? Don't go public too soon. Treasure these things in your heart. Size up the job. And the final thing Nehemiah did this is that he envisioned a team. He envisioned a team. And... Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and how its gates are burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. This is how Nehemiah envisions them. He says, this is what God has done so far. This is what God has called me to. This is what God has said. You know what he's doing? He's not saying this is what I want to do. He's not saying I've got this great idea. He's not saying, hey, come and share my vision. He said, this is what God has already said. This is what God has already done. This is how God has so far made a way. Look, even to the point that the emperor has commissioned me to come and do God's work. And when people hear what God is doing, Get get used to and and cultivate telling how God's story is working in your life. Not my story, but how God's story is working in my life. What is God doing in me? Go back to the word that Paul brought about his power and his glory at work in our lives. If you struggled to, to think of what that meant or to give example of that, Then go away and spend some time with the Lord and say, Lord, how is your power and glory at work in my life? What have you done and what are you continuing to do? And what do you want to do? And then tell the story of how God is working in you. He's not drawing them to a man's vision. He's drawing them to God's purpose. But here's the thing. However gifted you are, however favored by men you are, however much the good hand of the Lord is upon you, God does not want you to work alone. He doesn't want you to work alone. He wants others to join with you. And he wants to find where others people, how God's good hand is on other people's lives, comes and there becomes this synergy of working together. And we flow together in the purposes of God. And then when he begins to get opposition, and we may take another time and look at how he overcomes opposition because it's a story of opposition all the way through. This is his response. The God of heaven will make us prosper. There's something very liberating in that, isn't it? Any success that I experience will only be because God has done it. It frees us from any kind of performance-related way of looking at life. It's not what I can do. It's what God can do through me. What is his hand on me for? It's both liberating and at the same time can be quite scary. (laughs) Because you'll find a situation, we often find situations in life you think i could do something about this but if i do something about it what i do about it won't last for eternity in fact i'll be choosing to do something in the flesh rather than in the spirit naturally rather than supernaturally and it could be and often is the easy option let's go back to joseph he learned his lesson didn't he he knew he was he knew he was destined for greatness one day, the wife of a very powerful man came to him and offered him a shortcut to greatness. become my toy boy naturally that could have got him you know that could have got him several steps up the ladder but he said no i'm not i'm not i'm not going to do it i'm not going to do it after the flesh and he ended up back in prison <laughs> or back in yeah, in prison for the first time, but you know in a hole the first time, in a prison the second time. And eventually, God took him from that all the way to the highest position in the land aside from Pharaoh. God, the God of heaven, will make us prosper. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And I believe that is God's intention for you this year, for each one of us, to prosper as we build something eternal. And I don't have any preconception about what those things are. I, I, I really hope and pray that it's all kinds of stuff I'd never even thought of that you find that God has put in your heart. I also don't expect that we're going to find like, you know, 60, 70 different things. We're going to find... That there are things where God is calling people and, and, and things that join together. And there'll be people like the guys around Nehemiah that says, yes, let's do this. Let's do this together. As I was, um, as I was preparing this, um, I, I was reminded of a, of a great song from the 80s. 80s, uh, 80s music, um, you know, whether, whether we're talking secular all worship music was the high point of music in history. Paul's laughing. No, it wasn't necessarily the high point in music. Um, uh, but there was, it was a very high point. Worship music in the 80s was a very high point. Naturally, naturally, the charts, 80s was the best era ever. Just like say, if you disagree with me, you're wrong. Um, but worship music in the 80s, the, the content of what we were singing was some powerful, powerful stuff. The tunes we sang it to often left something to be desired. But there we go. Um, we, I'm going to play you a song, or Dave's going to play you a song. And, uh, yeah, just, just, um, just, just listen to this and see if this rings true. Matthew played In My Generation by Mark Altro. <laughs> I want to... Yeah, guy, you could have done that. You could have pulled that off, you guys. Particularly ross with his uh with his 80s guitar um i want to build with silver and gold in my generation i want to give my life for something that will last forever because that's what you were called for amen let's stand together i'm going to pray and then we're then we're finished Lord, when we consider the calling you've placed upon our lives to build something that lasts for eternity. Lord, we're at at the same time overwhelmed and in awe at the privilege and at the magnitude of what you call us to. And yet, Lord, we know that it's not not by might and not by power, but by your spirit and with man, these things are impossible, but with you, all things are possible. So, Lord, I pray for us, Lord, that as we, as we ask this question, as we pray this, Lord, what is on your heart? Lord, that what's on your heart becomes what's in our heart. And what's in our heart becomes a, a, a force, a driving force, like fire in the bones, as Jeremiah said. To build something, not temporary, that will not pass away, but will last into eternity. By your power and for the display of your glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this teaching from City Church Coventry. You can find more great teaching and other resources on our website at www.citychurchcoventry.org.